On the third Sunday of Advent, we light three candles. Our hope grows stronger and our joy grows brighter as we prepare to celebrate Christ's coming. We remember also in this time of shadows those whose tears still water the ground with sadness, and we pray that God will bring all people home with shouts of joy. Come, Lord Jesus, in your light we will trust and not be afraid. In God's promised new heaven and new earth, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Come, Lord Jesus, in your light we will trust and not be afraid. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Come, Lord Jesus. In your light, we will trust and not be afraid. There's a lot of sickness going around, so I want to encourage you to greet one another. Shake hands at your own risk. (laughs) Share a word of peace and greeting with each other.
few things I want to highlight in the life of the church. Uh, tonight is our uh, annual time of getting together to sing Christmas carols, sing the carols that you want to sing, the ones that are in the hymnal. We'll have some sheets that uh, have other carols on them that are not in the hymnal. And we want to invite you to come tonight if you play an instrument. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of the, the makeshift orchestra that we put together here. Just maybe come about quarter to six and get things set up. We'll have chairs and uh, music stands for you. And we'd love to have you participate in that way. And, uh, and also, we have a children's choir that's going to sing a couple of songs for us tonight as well. And then afterwards, we'll go to the community room, and we'll uh, have a time of fellowship and some cookies. If you can bring a dozen cookies or so, that would be great. Uh, if you can bring a few more, we will take whatever's left over, and we will distribute it to our food pantry in this coming week. And speaking of the food pantry, uh, thank you so much for the gifts that you presented uh, a few weeks ago. We have some pictures of some of the shelves in the food pantry uh, after having filled them up with the food from here and from the college, and we're so grateful. I do want to tell you, though, that in the last six weeks, we have given food out to 130 people in 29 families, and I think that will probably just continue. So we are continually looking for... More donations, if you want to give cash, we can use that to buy perishable items uh, to help stock things ourselves. But just we appreciate your generosity in giving, and many people are being helped by your contributions. Thank you. Uh, you'll see that next Sunday morning, uh, we begin our holiday service schedule, a one ten o'clock service. And the insert your bulletin list the next uh, few weeks uh, with our service schedule. Next Sunday, the choir is going to be singing, and we'd love to have you be a part of this special uh, one-time song. So if you'd like to join, they practice on Tuesday evening and about an hour, and we'd love to have you be a part of that gathering. And just note that Wednesday evening activities will not be taking place over the next few weeks. On Christmas Eve, we'll have two services, one at 5 o'clock, one at 7 they're very similar, but they do have some differences. The 5 o'clock service will have some things specifically geared to children. And, uh, but in both services, we will light candles. We'll read uh, the passages of the, of the birth. We'll sing Christmas carols together, and uh, it will be a glorious time. We hope you, if you're here, you will be able to join us. Uh, there are also, we are in the final stages of collecting our faith promise cards. So if you haven't yet turned in a faith promise card and you intend to, uh, if you could do that in the next couple of weeks, that would be helpful. You can drop it by the office anytime or the next couple of Sundays in the offering plate as we move toward our goal of $30,000 between now and the end of May. There are always things that we are praying about. The number of things are listed in the bulletin. And to this list, I want to add a, a couple. Uh, we want to pray for uh, Jim and Donna Zoller. Donna's mother died Thursday night, and they have gone to New Hampshire for the service on Tuesday. And then, of course, we want to be in prayer for everyone affected by the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut on Friday. It's hard to, certainly hard to get our minds around that type of event happening and people doing those kinds of things. But we pray for God's grace and mercy in the midst of this tragedy and that uh, God's people will be a presence of comfort and, and help uh, to those who are most deeply affected by, uh, by this difficult time.
please join me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin, and we will read responsively. O God, you search us out and know us, and all that we are is open to you. We confess that we have sinned. In your mercy, Lord, forgive us and heal us. When we long for your coming to change the world, and yet are unwilling to change even our own hearts, in your mercy, Lord, forgive us and heal us. When we do not make straight paths for justice, nor offer a welcome when you come as a stranger, in your mercy, Lord, forgive us and heal us. When we dismiss prophets and angels and refuse to nourish your word in us, in your mercy, Lord, forgive us and heal us. When we reduce our preparation for your coming to what others need to change in their lives instead of what we need to change in ours, in your mercy, Lord, forgive us and heal us. We turn to you, O God of infinite mercy. We renounce evil. We claim your love. We choose to be made whole. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. May we now stand and sing the doxology. Lord, you are even now teaching us that you infuse the everyday things with your presence and your spirit and your purpose, that truly the kingdom is built among us. Lord, as we do ordinary things like placing money in a basket, Lord, show us that our souls are changed and your kingdom is built. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of John 1, 6 through 8, and Luke 1, 15 through 17. As is the historic practice of the church, can we stand for the reading of the Gospel and remain standing for the hymn that follows? John 1, 6 through 8. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And Luke. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of God.
be seated. Is this working? A little bit? Okay. Little mic issues here. Wedding rehearsal, time off, off season in the gym, cleaning your house, the extra special amount for the people who are coming to visit, going to the store to make sure you have all the ingredients, reading your lines for the play you're in 10, 12, 15 times, extra time in the library. What do all those things have in common? They're all about preparation. They're all about spending time getting ready for something that's important to us. I've come to the conclusion that if something is important to us, we'll prepare for it. If it's not important, we might prepare, we might not, we can take it or leave it. If you're a part of an athletic team and it's fun, but it's not really important, then probably practices get old pretty fast. If you're a part of a play or some type of production, and you're in it for the fun, but not really for, with your passion, rehearsals come and go. If you like to have good grades, but you, know, you can take it or leave it, then I suspect your study habits will be take it or leave it. Because you see that the success of, of a performance isn't when you stand on stage and the curtain opens in front of the audience. It's all the weeks and weeks before when you were preparing. And the success on, in an athletic event is not when you, when you stand on the court or on the field or on the track to the cheering crowds, but it's all of the times that you went early to the gym, when you stayed late, when you, early morning practices, late night practices, in the gym, on the track, on the field, where you continue to keep pushing and pushing and preparing. And getting good grades, the, the success of that isn't determined when you sit in a classroom, as some of you will do in the next few days, and open a blue book and begin writing. But the weeks you spent in the library, closing the library, opening the library, reading the material, reading it again, reading it again, in order to make sure you grasp it. In order to, to do things right, in order to be successful about the things that are important to us, we prepare. And we do it all the time with all kinds of things. And if it's not important... We simply don't prepare. We don't take it seriously. There is no more, no more significant moment in history than the coming of Christ into the world. And when Christ comes into the world, God makes certain that people are prepared for his coming. And the culmination of that preparation is sending John the Baptist to be the messenger. In this passage from John the Apostle's Gospel, we read, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. 
Now, when I read that, part of me feels like talking about John in the midst of this hymn about Jesus seems out of place. This, is, this should be all about Jesus. Why interject John? I suspect it might be because there are still people, even John writes this gospel near the end of the first century, there are still people who are more enamored with John the Baptist than they are with Jesus. And so the author John wants to set the record straight. As awesome as John the Baptist is, as necessary and important and, and significant as he is to the coming of Christ, he is a witness to the light. He's not the light. And in our culture of celebrity worship, even in the church, it's a good reminder for us that as important as the people are who help us understand the scriptures and understand how to follow God and are significantly important in our spiritual walk, they are witnesses to the light, not the light. And sometimes we can become so enamored with those witnesses that we make them the light. We forget it's all about Jesus. But I suspect the larger reason for, for John being included here is that for people who have had the Old Testament prophecies read to them over and over and over again, to people who have heard God's message of preparation through the centuries, just in case they miss it, here comes John to help them get it. And John comes as the messenger of preparation to the people of Israel to the people of the world, for the coming of the Messiah. You see, the people who, who ignore Jesus are the people who ignore John. The people who are cold-hearted toward Jesus are the people who are hard-hearted toward John. And the people who embrace Jesus are the people who embrace John. In Luke chapter 20, there's this story of the scribes and the chief teachers of the law. They come to Jesus and they say, Who gives you the authority to do all of this? And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Jesus has a lot more of a sense of humor than I think we realize. And he says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it just something human? And these guys get together in a little huddle and discuss this question. And they say, you know, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? And if he's, we say, well, it was just from earth, then the people are going to riot and stone us because they believe John was from heaven. So they take, the, they take the cowards way out and just say, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine, you don't answer my question, I won't answer yours. And he walks away. But you see the connection. These people who, who reject Jesus are the people who reject John. And the people who embrace Jesus are the people who embrace John. And when you and I think about the coming of Christ into our lives, not just the first time, but over and over again, as he keeps moving us to deeper and deeper spirituality, spiritual walk with him, in depth of relationship with him, it comes back to preparing our hearts, being open and sensitive to the things of God, to have the mindset of God, the attitude of God, so that we can hear and respond and receive. And when you look at John's message, all of the gospel writers in one way or another sum it up in John's proclamation, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke chapter 1, we have the story of, of John the Baptist, uh, his father, being in the temple. He's a godly priest and he's come to, to minister in the temple. 
And while he's there, all alone, an angel appears to him and says, Zachariah, I know that you and your wife haven't been able to bear children. We're going to do something about that. And you guys are going to have a child, and he is going to be a special child. He is going to be the forerunner, the one who prepares people for the Messiah. And in the midst of that conversation, the angel says, here's what he's going to do. And verse 16 of Luke 1 says, the angel says, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will turn them around. He will soften their hearts. He will prepare them. He will get them ready to hear and to understand and to accept and to receive Christ. That will be his role. But what will that look like? How will they know if, if the people are responding to John positively? What will, look, what will their lives look like? What kinds of things might happen in them if, they, if they are truly, their hearts are truly turned back to the Lord their God? I suspect there are many things. But it interests me that the angel says following this, that John will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And all this will be done to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think the second thing that the angel says is a little more understandable to us. The disobedient being turned to the wisdom of the righteous. I think in that in that phrase, there is something of salvation. The people who have rebelled against God, they turn back to God. But I don't think it's limited to that. I think it's people who have a sensitivity and awareness, a willingness to let people speak into their lives the truth of God. Now, through the years, I've had people who have spoken God's truth to me. And sometimes they've done that gently in a spirit of, I would say, uh, kindness. And other times people have spoken God's truth to me and in a different way. And my natural reaction is to get defensive and, and to begin to think, I don't need to hear this. I think that's pretty common. But in the times when I have sifted through what's truth and what's not... And when I have sort of set aside perhaps the, the, the means by which it was communicated to me, I can clearly see that my willingness and my openness to hear what they have to say about something in my life that needs to be changed, I see a direct correlation between a sensitivity to that and my sensitivity to God about other things. When my heart is closed off to things that people speak into my life about things where I need to grow and improve, when I'm sensitive to that and I'm open to that, I know uh, it's a sign that I am much more open to God about other things that he says into my, in, to me as well. And I know when I'm closed off to those things, when I'm defiant about them, I, I can tell you it is a sign that I'm closing off my heart to some of the things God wants to say to me as well about deeper things. In Luke chapter 3, the, um, John the Baptist is preaching. 
And, and John is one of these preachers who is in your face. You know, you read John the Baptist, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come about this day? Who warned you to, to respond to this? And Mike talked about this some last Sunday night. But he, he has this message, and, and while he's speaking to the, to the people, the religious leaders are off to the side, ignoring him, opposed to him, rejecting him. But as John speaks, even those harsh words, the crowd, the common people turn to him and say, what should we do? What do we do about it? How do we repent? And John says, if you have two coats, give one away to someone who doesn't have a coat. And then the tax collectors come to John and say, what should we do? And he says, stop cheating people on their taxes. And the soldiers come to John and they say, what should we do? And he says, stop using your power for personal gain. And you have this, this group of people who respond positively to John's words of truth. And these are the same groups of people that you find later in the Gospels surrounding Jesus, hanging on every word that Jesus speaks with hearts open to him. And the same people who are over here ignoring John, rejecting John, are the same people who eventually put Jesus on the cross. There is this correlation in our lives between being open to the ways in which God speaks into our lives through other people that prepares us for the deeper things that God wants to keep doing in us. But the angel also says to to Zechariah, not only will the disobedient hearts be turned to the words of the righteous, but the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. I have been pondering that for a few weeks, trying to figure out exactly what that means. And I'm not sure I've gotten there, but it's a, it's a, a prophecy that's, that's spoken in Malachi, as we read earlier. The difference is Malachi talks about both ways. Malachi says the hearts of the fathers will be turned to their children, and the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. And some of the translations of Luke's gospel word it that way. Things like uh, parents and children will reconcile, and, and fathers will, and children will, will have a, a better relationship, and so that it's both ways. And that may well be what is meant. But it, it's intriguing to me that the angel doesn't say that. The angel just says the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. And I think there's something of significance in that. In ancient times and actually through the centuries and honestly even to now, the power in society and culture resides with fathers. I put together this little chart. It's a little bit simplistic, but I think it makes the point that males have power. Females are looked at as vulnerable and weak. And parents have power and children are vulnerable and weak. And so the people in society and culture who have the the center of power are fathers. And the people who have little or no power are female children. And you see this throughout cultures. Fathers with power over their children. In in ancient Rome, fathers could virtually do whatever they wanted to their children. 
And even today, children are the most vulnerable in all of society. They, they have little resources to defend themselves, to, to stand up for themselves. They, they don't have physical power, emotional power. And fathers tend to have most of it. But even if you talk, expand that among parents. Parents have power and children don't. And in the economy of the kingdom, the angel is telling us, people whose hearts are prepared for the work of God, the work that God wants to do in them, have a different perspective toward children than what society and culture tends to have. Instead of parents seeing children sometimes as a nuisance, something we tolerate, something we put up with, something that might be useful to us, we just simply see children as valuable, as important, as significant. That's certainly how we, that's certainly the picture we have of Jesus with children. In Mark chapter 9, there is a story of Jesus teaching and he takes a child and, and puts the child among them. And I have this image of the child sitting in Jesus' lap. And he says, whoever wants to follow me has to become like a little child. This is what the kingdom looks like. And what you do to these children, you do to me. And what you do with me, you're doing to the Father. And so if you want to have a right relationship with God, then it's important that you have a right relationship with Christ. And if you want to have a right relationship with Christ... You have a right relationship with children. I'm not sure we always see it that way. A chapter later, Jesus is is teaching and people are bringing little children to, to Jesus to have him bless them and the disciples shoo them away, rebuke them. And Jesus gets angry. He rebukes the disciples, that same thing that he does when, when he, that he does to the wind and the waves when the storms are threatening their boat on the sea. He rebukes them and he says, stop it. Children are what the kingdom's about. You can't enter the kingdom if you don't come like a little child. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them, Mark says. Children are valuable to Jesus. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. They are precious to Jesus. But it didn't start with Jesus. God has always had that mindset about children. In some of the ancient cultures, they would actually sacrifice children to their gods. And a number of times in the laws, in the Pentateuch, God says to Israel, don't you dare think about doing that. It is heinous to me. But beyond that, God says to the people, to, particularly to fathers, you're responsible for your, spirit, your children's spiritual well-being. You need to teach them and train them and you work with them and you help them to know me. Because the reality is godly parents tend to have godly children. And ungodly parents tend to have ungodly children and how you develop and nurture the faith of children is a huge part of your responsibility as parents don't take it lightly and 
father's hearts that are turned to their children is an attitude. It's a perspective about the value of children. I was thinking about that this weekend, the reading and, and hearing the events in, in Connecticut unfold. And you know, as I said earlier, it's one of those things that it's, it's first impossible to get our minds around why this would happen. And we grieve for these families. But the one thing we do know, this is an act of the evil one through a human being. Because the evil one hates God. And the evil one hates what is precious to God. And the evil one's goal is to destroy what is precious to God. And I'm convinced that's why through the ages, children have been the brunt of so much pain. Because the evil one knows if you can cause trauma in the life of a child, it will often affect them for the rest of their life. And actually, some of you are probably walking witnesses of that. It's because children are so precious to God. But it's not just about mistreating children. It is this mindset of valuing children. Of of raising children to a new level. Of seeing them as God sees them. Because we tend to treat children less positively than God does. And it's not just about parents. It's about the church too. Some of you may not have children or you may not have children at home. But we all have a responsibility for our children. That's why every time we dedicate a child to God, congregation stands and we affirm our commitment to this child and to this family. And we want them to know that we take that seriously. Because the image that children get of God and the church is shaped by people in the church. Children aren't saying, I have negative views of the church because somebody who because somebody who has nothing to do with the church treated them poorly. It's about how the church treats them. It's about how we are invested in their lives. And we are all probably we can all probably think of times when people in the church treated us positively and, and it it enhanced our feeling of the church and negatively and it hurt our feelings about the church. And about God. I remember back when I was, I don't know, sixth grade. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't an angelic child, but, you know, I wasn't terrible. Um, my mother would tell you I was angelic, but that's a whole other thing. But we, some friends and I were in the basement of church, maybe, it was either, I don't know, Sunday morning, Sunday night. It was after church. It could have been on any night of the week, to be honest with you. My dad was the pastor, so we were there most of the time. It seemed like, at least as a child... And we were downstairs running around in the basement of the church, not unlike the basement of this church, probably playing tag, hide-and-seek, something, and having fun. And the gentleman who was the Sunday school superintendent saw us, and he laid into us. And then he went and told my dad to make sure my dad knew that I was running in the church. Now, I have to give my dad a ton of credit because he handled that brilliantly. He, he said, I'll take care of it. He didn't scold me. He, he just talked to me about it. And, you know, I I have such positive feelings about how my dad handled that situation. Not so much about the Sunday school superintendent, but about my dad, yes. 
And that has been how many years ago? You know, how many years ago? And what intrigues me, though, is about a few months later, it was time for the elections. And in those days, we elected the Sunday school superintendent. And he had been Sunday school superintendent for probably 15 or 20 years. And that year, he wasn't reelected. And from the night of that election to, his, to the day he died, he never set foot inside of a church again. Turned his back on God completely. And the tragedy of that is that it seems to me that something about his, the way he treated children was simply revealing what was going on inside of his heart that we didn't see. If we want to prepare for God to work in us, wouldn't it make sense that we would have a deep level of sensitivity and compassion and openness and love toward the most vulnerable people among us? Marva Dawn, in one of her books, says, the agenda of the church should be set by the weakest among us. The agenda of the church should be set by the weakest among us. Now, I'm still wrestling with that idea, and there's probably some tension to go with it, but I think there's something in that. Because we, as the, because the church tends to mirror society and culture, unfortunately, and we tend to get wrapped up in the idea that it's all about bigger, faster, more impressive, more strength. And when, you, when that's the goal... People who don't help us move toward that end get pushed aside and left behind. And that's going to be children. A lot of times, uh, you know, our perspective as a church as a whole, not just our church, because I think actually we do this pretty well, but actually the church universal has a tendency to say, we need to find people to work with adults and Whoever is left will relegate them to the children. But Scripture tells us we ought to be thinking the exact opposite. We ought to be putting our best efforts, our highest levels of preparation into children, into the most vulnerable, the most impressionable, who we can help understand who God is, and what God has done. When I think about the times when God has done a significant work in my life, when he's taking me, taken me to a deeper level of relationship with him, most of the time, it's not in uncommon moments. It's, it's not in moments that I would say were sort of miraculous or fantastic, but in common, ordinary life. When my heart was just doing what I'm supposed to do, when my attitude was turned toward the attitude that God wants, about things that I might consider insignificant, but in those moments, God sneaks up on me and does something amazing. And I suspect that's true of most of us. We tend to think, and even when we look at this prophecy, we might think that the angel would say to Zechariah, John will come and, and he, will, he will cause people to proclaim the Lord is God. 
he, he, will, he will tell them and help them to do amazing miracles. But not thinking more positively, engaging more effectively, humbling ourselves more toward children. And being open to, to the word, words of wisdom that we need in our lives. And yet that's what the angel says. And I'm not saying that's everything. I'm just saying to us that sensitivity to the most vulnerable is a kingdom principle. It's not a coincidence that God is born in a manger as a baby, helpless, insignificant, common. As we move into this Advent season, in this time of waiting, this time of seeking God and preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ once again, how would we judge our sensitivity to the word of truth that people may speak to us? How would we judge our sensitivity? our openness to the least and most vulnerable and what we might think of as most insignificant among us. I wonder if if maybe, maybe, maybe we, we will sense God's spirit working in our lives as much by, by taking time to play games or read with our children as by listening to another program on Christian radio or by involving ourselves in teaching or helping in a class of children as much as by engaging ourselves in another class that's geared to us. or by listening to our youth, spending time with them, caring for them, loving them, as by reading another article in a Christian periodical. It's not as though we don't need to nurture our lives. We do. It's important. It's significant. But what's the proportion? What's our willingness our sensitivity, our openness to give of ourselves so that God and Christ can speak into our lives once again. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace to us, for preparing us Forgive us for the times when we become so self-absorbed that we miss it. Open our eyes and our hearts to those subtle ways and yet vitally important ways 
in which you desire to prepare the soil of our hearts for Christ to come once again. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore.